0: Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning, my name is Matt Harris and I am privileged and blessed to be able to share the word of the Lord with you this morning. but who is Matt Harris? Who am I? Some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, I'm married to this lovely lady sitting in 3L, Sue Freeman. Um, we celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary this January, but more importantly, today's her birthday, so if you get a chance to wish her a happy birthday, that would be lovely. Um, Sue and I were part of the City on a Hill Brookline Church uh, for probably six years, seven years, and this January we've transitioned here to City on a Hill Forest Hills. I served as an elder at City on a Hill Brookline. Before we came to the Boston area, we lived south of the city, and Sue and I served in leadership at a church called Good News Bible Chapel, also translated as Gospel Bible Chapel, as we all know. So I want to welcome you all here this morning, and I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. Um, it's great to have you here. We're so glad you tuned in to this service of worship and teaching. And for those of you who are checking out Jesus and trying to get a grasp of who He was and what He means and what He could mean in your life, a special welcome to you. You are so welcome here in our presence and online. We're really glad you're here. City on a Hill has three... Core missions, gospel, community, and mission. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that we believe in God as Father and Jesus Christ as Son, but our sin separates us from the Father. But Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because we incurred a debt we couldn't pay. Our mission of community is simply that we are not designed to go through life alone. We're not designed to just toughen up and grit our teeth and work through difficulties. That's not how God built us. We're designed to be together in community. That could mean being here in this church or being online and and connecting and sending comments through the online system. It could mean being in our CG, so if you're not in a CG, you really, really need to check out being in a CG. And then there's new words out there, like being in a pod, and this is the strangest one, being in a cohort. Anyone out there in a cohort? I I, I don't know if I am. If I'm in your cohort, I want to know. And the third mission is mission. The mission is to live missionally and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's such good news that it really needs to be shared. Now, I'm not going to go into strengths and teachings on evangelism, like how do you share the good news, except one little tip. If you're in a conversation with something and they are getting a little transparent and telling you about some difficulties they may have in your life, I really would like you to just think about this phrase. Look them in the eye and say, is it okay if I pray for you? That should be easy for all of us. I don't think that we're going to be challenged. I've never been challenged in the many times I've just offered to pray for someone who I may know well or I may not. It is the most welcome thing they've heard all day. I want to set a little picture, a little story here. Imagine you're an Uber driver. That's your, that's your livelihood. You're pulling nickels and dimes and dollar bills together trying to make ends meet and you're in a horrible automobile accident. After many surgeries and months in rehab, you finally make it home to do your final recovery so you can get back to trying to put food on the table for your family. And you go to the mailbox, and a bill comes from the hospital, and you owe them hundreds of thousands of dollars. You just, you can't pay that. This is a debt you cannot pay. Easter was just two weeks ago. We were outside on this beautiful sunny day. I'm kinda glad we're inside today. I think Matt Waldrop's fingers are especially glad we're inside today. Stephen was wearing a very nice suit, you might recall that. But three days before Easter on Good Friday, we reminded of how Jesus Christ was crucified. He was brought before a sham trial and sentenced to a horrible death. We cringe when we think about what happened to him. We recoil when we think about the pain he went through. We grimace when we envision the nails. I have a really hard time wrapping my head around what happened to him and how I feel about this horrendous, horrible death that my Savior was subjected to. But there's actually something To compare that feeling to. It's the feeling that God has when he sees our sin. If we are saturated in our sin, even the smallest amount, God recoils. He grimaces. He must look away because he cannot be in the presence of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, We know you are such a good God. We know that you have blessed us. We know that you are with us. We know you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. We don't always understand how the sin in our life affects you. We're so self-centered, we think about how it affects us. Lord, we know that you grimace and recoil from our sin, but we also know that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness. So, Lord, let us, let, let us think about that today, Lord. And I ask that, Father, you will be preparing my heart and my, and the words that you've given me, Lord, to, to share this story from Second Samuel, Lord, and to share how we should look at our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. I have three points I want to talk about, and one main point. I want to talk about God's holiness, because without understanding His holiness, we can't understand anything that we're about in worship. I want to talk about God's provision, how he provides for us. And I want to talk about God's judgment because it's real. My main point is that all sin must be paid for. So God's holiness. When I became an elder at Coa Brookline, Pastor Bland handed me a book It was so big, I thought it should come on a little cart. It was about this thick, well no, it was about this thick. It was called Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's an amazing book. And in that book, Mr. Grudem defines the holiness of God as God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Another great teacher and pastor Paul David Tripp writes about holiness of God. The doctrine of the holiness of God sits in the center of the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the holiness of God, there would be no moral law to which every human being is responsible. Without the holiness of God, there would be no divine anger with sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no perfect son as an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Without the holiness of God, there would be no vindication of the resurrection. Without the holiness of God, there would be no final defeat of Satan. Without the holiness of God, there would be no hope for a new heaven and a new earth where holiness will reign over us forever. I really want that. I want the final defeat of Satan. Don't you? I want the new heaven and the new earth to come down and to reign over us in holiness. Don't you? Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. He's talking about being in heaven with him. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The Bible tells us that God is holy and righteous. God is the very definition of holy. His righteousness means he is just. I mean, he is a fair, good, even-handed, avenging God. But he is just. He's a God of supreme justice. Because without justice, he cannot be righteous. Do you remember when in the Old Testament when Moses was camped in the plains of Moab, preparing to send the Israelites across the River Jordan. He was trying to remind them of the greatness of God, which they seemed to regularly forget. They would go out and make idols, and complain, and wish they were back in Egypt in bondage. In Deuteronomy 32, he wrote what is now called the Song of Moses, and he writes, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, which means wickedness or immorality. He's a God without wickedness or immorality, and he is just and upright is he. And do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham was interceding for the people in that, those cities because God was going to wipe out the city and everyone in it. And he was interceding them, and he implored God to be the just God that he knew he was. He says in Genesis 18, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the prophet Isaiah has given these words from the Lord. By the way, if you're not picking this up, I really want to emphasize holiness of God and justice of God because it's so important to how we view our sin. Prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness, He was referring to the pagan oracles who were practicing their their prophecies in secret dark caves. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. This God speaks through prophets who, much to their own sacrifice, speak out in the open, speaking truth to power. But when you arise, speak out in the open for others to hear. We should take care that our words reflect the gospel. We should be attentive that our words recall that we cannot save ourselves, but that our salvation comes by faith, not by works. So we're in a series about the King David. Now, David was many things. He was a shepherd. He was a slayer of giants. He was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a musician, a poet, an author. David wrote many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms. And King David was the very protagonist and antagonist about our scripture that was read by Victor this morning. And he even wrote the very words in Psalm 19 that would later come back and point out his own hypocrisy. David wrote in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I mean, David gets it. He knows that God is just and holy and merciful. Yet, as we know from the story that, da- that Pastor Stephen presented about David and Bathsheba, he didn't always remember this. Even King David knew that God was holy, just, and righteous. So my main point is here, God is holy, righteous, merciful, just, and that God is separated from sin. Sometimes it seems that mercy and justice are at odds with each other, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm going to receive mercy, then can't I just forget about my sin? Like, I've been forgiven, almost to the point where I can say, because I trust in God and he is merciful to me, then I can go on sinning because he will wipe it away. It's not really how it works. If I will be shown mercy, then can I just avoid having to pay for my misdeeds? But God is actually both merciful and just at the same time. Yes, God grants mercy to us by forgiving us of our sins, but because he is a just God and a holy God, he must judge sin. He cannot let it go unaccounted for. You see, every sin comes as a package deal. Every sin. When a sin occurs, a debt also occurs. When we sin, we incur that debt. It is a debt the sinner owes to God because your sin is against God and your sin separates you from God. And because God is holy, God must be separate from that sin. And because He's a God of justice, there needs to be accountability for sin. It would be inexcusable for a judge to ignore a crime. We insist that our judges hold responsible parties accountable. If a defendant in a trial were convicted of murder, and the judge decides to simply set them free, sweep it under the rug. How would we feel about that? We couldn't tolerate it. So not only is God holy, but he provides so much, everything that we need. Let's recap what Stephen left us a few weeks ago before Easter when he taught on David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was a very beautiful woman who David took notice of. He asked his advisor, who is she? And he was told that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She was the wife, wife, wife of another man. And who was Uriah? Well, he was an elite soldier in David's army. He was one of the small SEAL Team 6 commandos that protected David in the wilderness while Saul was pursuing him. David and Uriah had trained together, fought together. They had each other's back. They had been through thick and thin. This man was totally dedicated to King David. Many people would say they were blood brothers and possibly best friends. But then there was Uriah's beautiful wife Bathsheba. There she was on her rooftop, naked, bathing. David was on his rooftop also. And he had a great view of Jerusalem and probably an even better view of Bathsheba. He couldn't take his eyes off of her. And matter of fact, we wonder if he even tried. Here's a shocker. Once his libido kicked in, he was not thinking clearly. He probably didn't think things out too fully. My goodness. How do, how do men put themselves into this situation? He maybe used this as an excuse for what is inexcusable. He forgot that women are created in God's image and worthy of honor. So with this disability in mind, David rushed forward into a series of connected, downward-spiraling sinful acts that resulted in, in him committing adultery, getting Bathsheba pregnant, masterminding the murder of Bathsheba's husband, And lying to cover up his sins. So, in today's passage, the Lord sent his prophet Nathan to lay a trap for the king. Let's see what happens in verse one. Nathan came to King David with what appears to be a story. Verse one, he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. Now, just for a second. In our language, when someone comes and says, there were two men in a city, one rich and one poor, I think of the, you know, a joke that's coming next, you know, there was a rabbi, a pastor, and a duck walked into a bar. Uh, and I don't know the rest of that joke, so, but it's probably on the internet. Let's continue. Verse 2, the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Can you see this scene in the poor man's house? He and his wife and his kids will settle down for a very simple meal, and the small ewe lamb would climb up in the man's lap, feeling happy and warm and protected. Now, David had great respect for Nathan. Nathan. You might recall that earlier in the book of Samuel, Nathan brought God's word to David with regards to building a house of cedar. This was referring to the temple in Jerusalem. You remember the people said to their prophets, we want a king. And then they said, and we want a temple to worship that king. God came to Nathan and directed him to tell David that he he was not to build the temple. God wanted David to focus, focus, focus on being a king to the people of Israel. However, he told David that he would have a child who would build this house up for the Lord, build the temple, and further establish the kingdom forever. Nathan was prophesizing about Solomon. Now, these kings of Israel were far from perfect men. Saul David and Solomon were kings with lots of baggage. And even though Solomon would himself commit many iniquities, and he would be chastened for them, but unlike God's response to Saul, God's mercy would never leave Solomon. So when David heard the story of the rich man and the poor man, he took this report from his trusted advisor very seriously. And he was outraged at what the rich man had done. He called for accountability for this sin, for repatriation for the poor man, and even for death for the rich man. But here's the question, why didn't David see himself in what was a story? I mean, he took it for a news report, a report from his advisor, not a story that was actually pointing to himself. Why was he convinced that the evil rich man was someone else? It's because it's hard, it was hard for David to see his own sin, and it's hard for us to see our own sin. It's also hard for us to clearly see what David has provided for us, the blessings and gifts he creates in us, the mercies that are new every morning. We slide right through, seeing ourselves as either the one being defrauded and being taken advantage of, or maybe we see ourselves as the hero, the one who's going to save the day. Instead of the one who is a sinner or in the wrong, we easily forget how great a God we have. For David, God provided his house, his wives, victory in battle, and the kingdom of Israel. What has God provided you that you struggle to recognize? I'm not saying we all have it good. I'm not saying that we just skip and dance through life with nothing to worry about. Now, we may have a house, family, jobs, finances, but we may not. We may have pain. We may be persecuted. We may struggle every day. But when you are in the family of God, which He placed you in that family, that community, brothers and sisters will come alongside and include you. That community is of God. Ironically, God may provide a Nathan in your life, someone to hold you accountable, someone to remind you of how good God is. That commu- maybe someone in your CG. You have someone in your life who can speak hard truths to you. Or do you think maybe you can go it alone? So the rich man, very, very wealthy, He had many flocks and herds, and the poor man had the single ewe lamb, which was so dear to him that he treated it like his own daughter. One day, the rich man was entertaining a guest, maybe a traveler, who came through the city and stopped at the rich man's house. And as was the custom, you open your house and you show hospitality, which may consist of a nice place to sleep and a wonderful hearty meal." So, in order to provide that meal, instead of the rich man going to his own enormous flock, he sent a servant to the poor man's house, stole the poor man's one and only little lamb, brought it to the chef, and they had a barbecue. The rich man had lots of lambs. Why didn't he just kill one of his own? I don't know. I think he he wouldn't even miss it. They were not dear to him. They were effectively part of his total net worth right his checking account his ira his his you know his his nest egg that he didn't want to deplete one little bit okay as an aside do you like numbers i do i think numbers are really cool i got a couple i have three questions for you and if you want to answer this question, I want you to raise your hand and stand up. I'll call on you, okay? Seriously, I know we don't do this a lot in church, but I want to encourage you. If you know the answer to this question, put your hand up and I'll call on you. All right, here's the first question. What mountain has recently been remeasured and seems to have grown two feet since the last time it was measured and now comes up to 29,031 feet? What's the name of the mountain? Anyone... Raise your hand. What is it? Mount Everest. Yes. Mount Everest was recently remeasured and it looks like it's grown two feet since the last time it was measured accurately. Okay, I got another question for you. What does this number refer to? 31,536,000. This is a little harder. I don't think, I don't know if anyone's going to get it. Maybe you can Google or get your calculators out. Folks, the number of COVID cases, um, whoa, no. But that's scary, right? It's the number of seconds in one year. 31 million, 536,000. Okay, last question. What does this number mean? 321 million dollars. 321 <laughs> million dollars. It is not what I gave my wife for her birthday. Okay, this is the amount of money Jeff Bezos earns in one day. Richest man in the world, right? $321 million in one day. You know him, founder of Amazon, world's richest man. Imagine if you were ever lucky enough to have dinner with Jeff Bezos. After dinner, who's going to reach for the check? You or Jeff Bezos? I mean, To entertain his guests, Mr. Bezos could pay for any meal in any restaurant in the world, and it wouldn't dent his wealth. Now, the rich man in Nathan's story was very much like Jeff Bezos. He had more money or lambs than he could spend, yet he still sent a servant to the house of the poor man and stole the poor man's only lamb. It's as if Jeff Bezos sent one of his Amazon drivers to Whole Foods, took the food stamps out of a single mom's hands and rushed back and gave them to Mr. Bezos. I mean, if that happened, I mean, it hasn't happened. It's ridiculous. But if it happened, wouldn't you be mad? Wouldn't you be upset? Wouldn't you want to set the things right? I don't think the rich man forgot he had all these lambs in his pastures. I mean, how could you? They're everywhere. And um, I think... There's an odor associated with him. I think he was just sinning. He was focused on his own net worth and not wanting to deplete it one little bit. So he took the poor man's lamb. The promise of sin is that we look for satisfactions in things other than Jesus, and in this case, money or lambs. But the promise of the gospel is that we will be satisfied in him. Pastor Stephen says sin never truly satisfies. It always leaves you wanting more. No matter how much you have, it promises to satisfy you, but never will. Paul wrote in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. But David was livid. He wanted the judge to judge the rich man and have justice served. He instructed that the rich man should repay the poor man fourfold for the ewe lamb that had been taken. Why did he decide it needed to repay him fourfold? Because King David knew the Mosaic law. He knew the Torah. And he knew that in the book of Exodus, it says in chapter 22, if a man steals an ox, He will repay it with five oxen. If he steals a sheep, he will repay it with four sheep. King David knew this. It's part of the Exodus story that closely follows the Ten Commandments. Further, David demanded that the rich man be killed for what he had done to the poor man. A king, a king can hold a sinner accountable. So when David, when Nathan heard David's response and the king's demand that the rich man repay the poor man with four lambs and be sentenced to death, Nathan rebuked David. He spoke truth to power. In, ch- in verse 7 of our scripture today, it says, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Wow. Has David fallen so far? This is the boy who, because of his faith in God, defeated a giant. This is the military leader who far surpassed victories of his predecessors and won the love and loyalty of the people of Israel. This was the friend of Jonathan, so dear a friend, that Jonathan himself gave up his own birthright to be the next king. And this is the man... This is the man who looked at all that God had given him, wealth, wives, victories, a kingdom, and would have given him more. But how did he respond? He basically embraced his sinful nature. He believed the lie that sin would satisfy. It did not. Sin just brought more sin. How should we view God's provision? God has blessed us and will provide more blessings to you if you seek him. His blessing is in his word and in his peace and in the knowledge that you are loved by him, no matter your past and no matter your sin. So how does God enact righteous judgment? Nathan now tells David how this is going to go down. Verse 10, now, therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Sin shall be kept held accountable. God the judge cannot just sweep it under the rug. It says the sword shall never depart from your house. It seems that it, that is literally what happens. The house of David becomes a royal disaster. Pastor Stephen will soon teach us on what happens to David's family. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. He's referring to the infant son, which was born from David's sin with Bathsheba. But even with all of this crushing outcome, David was a man after God's own heart. God knew that David could not stand alone against the power of Satan. None of David's sin came to God as a surprise. David's heart was convicted, and he did confess, and he did repent. And God forgave David. Forgiveness of David and payment of debt. Every sin comes with a debt to be paid. Ask God for forgiveness of your sins, and it will be granted. But the debt... Still must be paid. And even though David was a king, he realized he wasn't the king. David knew that God was the king. David wrote many of the Psalms, and one of the most impactful ones to me is Psalm 51, which he is surrendering his kingness and pleading for forgiveness. Some of these verses in Psalm 51 are, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And finally, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God forgives our sins, but sin has consequences. All sin establishes a debt between the sinner and God. Who did David sin against? Well, he sinned against a lot. Bathsheba, Uriah, God. But God is also judge. Not only that, but God is a fair and just judge. Justice must be served. So the sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah must be reconciled. That debt must be paid. But what happens when you owe a debt so big that you can't pay it? Many of us associate debt with money. Have you ever been in a financial bind where you owed money that you couldn't repay? Jesus on the cross paid a debt that A, he didn't owe, and B, you couldn't pay. You couldn't pay the debt that your sin created. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." God placed our sin on Jesus, who had no sin. John 3.36, "...whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." All sin deserves penalty. It can only be paid in one of two ways. The penalty is paid by Jesus on the cross for those in Christ or in hell for those not in Christ. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Easter Sunday, also known as Resurrection Sunday. That's because after suffering and dying on the cross, he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A large stone was rolled across the entrance Locking any way in or out of this tomb, which was carved out of solid rock. When the tomb was sealed, and I'm not sure what the seal was. It says the tomb was sealed. I'm thinking like when you seal an envelope and you drip wax on it and you put a stamp on it. That kind of seal. Like maybe it was done on the wall of the stone or on the where the stone met the tomb or something. But it, but the seal was a sign of authentication. That the tomb was occupied, and that the tomb was under the power and authority of the Roman government. It's the Rome stood behind the seal. If anyone was found breaking the seal, they would face an unpleasant death. And if that wasn't secure enough, the Romans posted guards at the tomb. Let me tell you about the guards. Roman guards were part of a 16-man unit, and when a guard was on duty, he couldn't sit down, he couldn't lean against anything, he just had to stand there and be, be a guard, and he could not fall asleep. If he fell asleep, he would be executed, along with the other 15 guards in his unit, You think these guys took their jobs seriously? I do. Yet with all this security, on the third day after his death, Jesus rose up fully alive and left the tomb empty. The seal was broken, the stone was rolled away, and he presented himself to his disciples and to well over 500 witnesses who saw him, touched him, ate with him for 40 days, after which he ascended into heaven until he returns someday to judge mankind. Jesus died a death of atonement, a death of reparation. He died the debt. He paid the debt. His death stamps the marks and marks the sin of all believers as paid in full. So now what? As I wrap this up, I want to ask you two questions. Now what? and who's your Nathan. So if you're here checking out Christianity, if you're online thinking about I want to know about this Jesus character. First of all, you are so welcome. We are so glad you joined us. I want to remind you though that in John 3:16, he says, "For God so loved you that he gave his only son. And if you believe in him, you will not perish, but live and eternal life in heaven. If you want to know how this happens, if you want to know how your debt can be both forgiven and paid by Jesus, speak with someone who brought you here. Speak with someone who shared the link. Speak with someone that you know is part of Forest Hills or part of City on a Hill. They would love to explain that to you further. Christ followers, who's your Nathan? Our Nathans may be in our. They may be sitting next to you right now. They may be in your community group. Also, our Nathan is the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, who convicts us of sin and reminds us that we're created to to worship God who loves us. To everyone, how is your debt going to be paid? Is it going to be paid, or has it been paid for by Jesus on the cross, by his atonement and his sacrifice, or are you going to pay it? Let's pray.